no more room in hell. The dead will walk here. The blackest eyes. The devil's eyes. Thanks for tuning in to Body Count, the podcast for theblackesteyes.com. My name is Philip, and joining me tonight are Danny and Scott. And this is a place where we try to have intelligent conversation about horror movies. And as always, we're glad that you have joined us and really hope that you'll be a part of the conversation. Leave us some comments. Let us know what you think about the film and our review of the film. And we'd love to incorporate you into the ongoing conversation. We hope everybody is staying safe. As of this recording, we're still in the COVID-19 crisis, although it looks like there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Hopefully we're going to be coming out of this uh, sooner than later. And we hope everybody out there is doing okay. Let me check in with the guys here. Uh, Scott, what's happening in California? How you doing, buddy? I'm doing fine. Uh, we're doing okay out here. Weather's starting to get hot. Uh, it's uh, beginning of May, and that's usually when it starts to warm up. It doesn't really get hot here until July, but it, and it stays hot till October. But we're doing fine. We, we haven't got the virus. Good. I'm glad to hear that. And Danny is in eastern Kentucky. What's going on over there, man? Everything is going well here also. Uh, family is healthy. Not really any uh, viruses in our immediate area so it's been it's been pretty low stress other than the dealing with you know the isolation which is not easy for a, someone like me who's a little bit of an extrovert and likes to organize and get together with groups and stuff so i have been trapped alone in my home yeah so i'm a pastor and uh yesterday or sunday yeah yesterday which was sunday we had an opportunity for some church members to do some drive-by stuff. They were dropping off some goodies and some things. And just to be able to see faces and hear voices and laugh and wave, oh, it was so good. It was just so good to see everyone. And again, I just don't think we appreciate how important, um, yeah, just simply being together is and making physical contact and hugging and shaking hands and uh, it was so good to see faces. So hopefully we'll be back in church in a couple of weeks. Have they said anything in California about getting back uh, for worshiping, Scott? Well, for churches. So uh, our governor has recently announced a four-stage plan, and church is in stage three, which he has said is months, not weeks, away. Really? Yeah. But oh, I, that's I mean, going to get pushback, right? I, oh yeah, I mean, people are going to church. Uh, you know, I I haven't heard of anybody getting arrested or fined, but I do know people are are going to church. Usually, they're observing social distancing, maybe only you know small groups. But yeah, it's yeah because you know he changes it every you know every time we turn around. So we're supposed to open up it the middle of may may 15th but now we've got this four stage thing and certain businesses fall in stage two we're in stage one now certain businesses fall in stage two three four and so yeah he's you know he that's what he said months not weeks before you can get a haircut before you can go to church before you can gather besides just your family that's really interesting because governor Bashir in the state of kentucky is probably known now nationwide is one of the more conservative uh, governors in terms of how he's handled the COVID-19 crisis. And he's doing a phasing thing as well. But he has said May 20th uh, is when churches, houses of worship, as he's calling it, can begin uh, gathering again. And then I think, Danny, correct me if I'm wrong, it's like May 25th that like beauty salons and things like that uh, can open back up. 
with certain criteria, you know, in mind and social distancing and wearing masks and this kind of thing. But yeah, yeah I, I can't believe they're saying months uh, for Alpha's yeah. worship. That, so. I mean, that's that's the quote that, that sticks out for me, because he said that stage two will be weeks, not months, but stage three will be months, not weeks. So, you know, that's pretty memorable way to say it. And and churches and uh, religious organizations are in stage three. So we'll mm-hmm. see. I mean, I don't know. One of the goals of the governor here was to really um, increase the number of tests, daily tests that are going on. And if that increases, maybe things will relax quicker, but it's hard to say. Yeah. All right. Well, tonight we're going to discuss a 2018 horror film called Apostle. Uh, it is definitely a period of peace set in the early 20th century and um, a film that I think tries to say quite a lot. Whether or not it succeeds, we'll talk about that. So, Scott, today you're going to, I think, give us a a brief plot summary, and then we'll get into the meat of the film. So go for it, brother. All right. So this is what I would call kind of a folk horror film, and it it begins with, well, the basic plot is that there's a, a, a young woman who's been kidnapped by a strange religious cult out on a remote island, and... Uh, there's a ransom note, and her brother, um, Thomas, decides that, or is asked to be the one to go and retrieve her, but not pay the ransom. So he sneaks into this closed community, uh, pretends to be a convert, sneaks around, kind of figures out where his sister's being held and why. He learns a lot of secrets about this cult and their bizarre practices. There's bloodletting and goddess worship and all sorts of things. And um, he does find her. He, he, there's a lot of gore toward the end. There's a lot of violence, but um, he does help her to escape. That, that's the end. Okay, cool. Thank you for that. So let's talk about what we thought just in general about the movie after you saw the film. Uh, were you thinking, I'm glad I watched that? Good movie. Um, you know, I never want to revisit that again. Danny, what do you think about Apostle? I enjoy it. Uh, this is the second time I watched it a, a second time recently. I, I'm a fan of the director, uh, but he, you know, he he's known for his action films, and this really didn't have any of that. The action that you would normally get in one of his films was replaced by some pretty uh, extreme gore, which I thought was handled really really well. It was uh, attractive, you know, with quotation marks around it. Uh, I thought the the plot was compelling. I thought the tension was really good. Um, in general, I enjoyed it. I don't believe it's a great film, but I think it's a pretty good one, and and definitely part of the you know this recent renaissance of horror. There's just so many well-made, good-looking, great cinematography horror films out there that I just feel like we're in a really good place as far as the horror genre is concerned. This is a, a an example of that. Yeah. What about you, Scott? I really liked it. Uh, I mean, it. Yeah, I wouldn't say it's a great film in terms of its you know, artistic qualities or whatever, but it was entertaining. It was a crowd pleaser. I was gripped right away. It's beautifully shot. It seems like it's well-made. We'll get to it, I'm sure, but the acting was pretty strong, in my opinion. Um, The plot was a little predictable, but it had some 
um, surprises, and it had a few things that were seemed original, you know, were kind of unique. So I, I enjoyed it. I, I really thought, um, have a – I'd never heard of it until last week when you guys mentioned it, and I intentionally didn't read much about it. So, with, you know, I kind of like going in blind. And so I didn't know what to expect other than um, Danny had recommended it, and, yeah, I'm, I'm really glad I watched it. I think we're all three tracking in the same direction on the film. Uh, I really enjoyed it. The themes are, of course, uh, going to connect with me very heavily. There's some things that I I think the movie says, whether or not it was authorial intent, that I'm looking forward to talking about with you guys. Uh, but there there was just kind of that little lacking piece that would, that would keep me from saying it was just a great, great film. Uh, I don't know what it was exactly. Maybe as we come through the conversation, we can try to highlight some of those things. I, I never could quite put my finger on it, but I, I left thinking, you know, this this maybe isn't one of the all-time classics, but it's very good. It, it definitely has something to say. I thought the performances, for the most part, uh, were good, and it, it, it told a story that held together very, very well. So we all three enjoyed watching the film, so that's a good start. For us, let's talk a little bit about the gore. Um, we'll get into the themes. There's a lot to talk about here thematically, but I was surprised. Uh, I didn't know a whole lot about uh, the film going into it either, and I figured there was going to be, you know, some difficult scenes to watch. After all, we're talking about a whacked-out cult on the isolated island in the middle of nowhere, so we're probably going to see some really disturbing things. But I did not anticipate the level of gore that is in this movie. And as I'm watching it, I'm thinking, is this necessary? Does it tell the story? That's what I always ask about gore. Does it really add to the story? Or is it some chump just trying to put a lot of blood on the screen because he doesn't know what else to do? And uh, I found myself, um, I, I thought the gore was fine. I thought it was, could the movie have been made without it? Perhaps. But it was a, it caused me to say, wow, that's not something I was anticipating uh, in this movie, and it definitely got my heart beating and, and caused uh, my eyes to open. Uh, Danny, you had mentioned gore a little bit earlier. Uh, how, you know, did that did that shock you when you when the, when the movie took that turn, or how did you interpret that? Uh, it, it was definitely gore than I was expecting it to be. It is a made-for-Netflix movie, which I don't know if that really affects anything at this point. They're pretty much made like normal films, uh, and I, I went into it like you expecting a little bit of gore but it was it was nice and kind of over the top uh, i'm actually i really appreciate gore like uh, I, I don't go into films just for the gore but the the artistry involved in you know creating the kind of special effects makeup and you know the gore effects i've always been fascinated with it's part of my fascination with horror so i'm always kind of happy to see it. It, it like you said though if it's not in disservice of a good story and here it's not it's not distracting it, it seems like it follows where the story is going you would expect those moments of extreme violence when they happen and we you know, get nice sort of lovely cinematography uh, as we get as we watch these things. So yeah, I, I enjoyed the gore, and I guess I was surprised by it. Scott, I think of the three of us, you're probably the one who doesn't appreciate gore. Uh, Danny, maybe number one. I'm probably two, and you're probably three. So what did you think about uh, the uh, excesses that uh, were in the film? Yeah, I. I mean, I. So. For the first, what, two-thirds maybe, there's really not a lot of gore. There's, you know, some suspense and, 
you know, maybe some some action or whatever, but there's there's not. But then it really ramps up at the end. And yeah, I don't really consider myself a gore hound. I don't go into films that I there are certain movies that I, I just absolutely don't have any interest in seeing because of the gore. So it's not sort of my thing, but I didn't find it terrible. I didn't find it distracting. And you were supposed to be shocked. This was supposed to be when it ramped up. It was supposed to really be emotional and visceral and so you you kind of needed to see some of that i didn't think it was gratuitous and i think uh, actually it really did serve the the level of threat the first real gore scene in the movie is when the uh, assassin sent by king edward the seventh tries to kill the uh the priest mm-hmm. the leader mm-hmm. and he gets run through by all the spears and it's it it absolutely makes you afraid for the protagonist's life from that point forward. Death is a real possibility. Yeah, and as I mentioned at the beginning, the film is set in the early 20th century. Wikipedia says 1905. Are we actually given that date at any point in the film? I don't believe so. No, I don't I think don't, we were. No, I, I mean, I was thinking it was probably late 19th, early 20th century, but I don't remember seeing anything that told us exactly the date. Well, so it's, you know, it's somewhat modern. This is not a 17th or 18th century film, but when you come back and you look at some of those medieval kinds of torture practices, uh, it, truth really is stranger than fiction. In this case, truth is more horrific uh, than fiction because the things that they would do to the heathens, as this film would call them, and those who were denying God is, is, is unspeakable. And so it's interesting that in the film here that's somewhat modern, like again, Wikipedia says early 20th, uh, but we are shown kind of the brutality and the, and the level of uh, heathenism, uh, paganism that is in this cult as they are using barbaric practices in order to do things like purify uh, those who are sinful and whatnot. And it was an interesting juxtaposition between the, the timing of the film where it was set and the practices that were uh, bringing us to this, making it feel even more isolated, more disturbing, that we cannot get off this island and we're stuck there with these these monsters uh, who are trying to kill people. So let's so let's move in a little bit to the uh, to the theme. Then, uh, what are some of the themes of the film that we can talk about? Well, I tell you what. Before that, let's get to the performances. Uh, let's kind of get the, the more obvious stuff out of the way here. Um, yeah, what'd you guys think? How, how well was the movie acted? Scott, what do you think? I was, I, I thought it was good. Uh, the main character is uh, uh, Thomas, is his name, and he's going to rescue his sister. Um, I recognized him, and so I looked him up, and he's from Downton Abbey, okay, which I, I don't mind admitting that I watched. But he's also from a, <laughs> he's also, he was also in a um, kind of a horror, scary thriller called The Guest. Did you guys see that? I, I did. I had seen it a few years ago, and he was the star of that. And that, that's a pretty cool movie, too. So hmm. I recognized him. I thought he, he carried the weight of the picture pretty well. Actually, I was I was pleased with everybody. I thought the cult leader, played by, um, is it Michael Sheen, I think, uh, as Malcolm? Correct. Yeah. Yes. I, I mean, I've seen him in a bunch of stuff. He's got a long career. He's been in a tons of stuff, stage and screen. And I thought he was, you know, very, very engaging. The female characters were good. I, I had no complaints on them. I didn't think anybody, um, you know, was disappointing in that respect. 
it was interesting to see the, the big three, uh, Frank, Quinn, and Malcolm, uh, it was interesting because you have a feeling when you start watching the film that perhaps one of the three or two of the three, there's going to be someone have a difference of opinion. You know, there's going to be tension. You, you can begin to already see that at the very beginning. But what's interesting is it almost seemed to me like they made Quinn at the very beginning seem like that he was going to be the sympathetic one. It, it seemed like when Malcolm was giving his initial speech in the church, you, you got this sense that Quinn was looking at him like, I just don't know if I believe this anymore. <laughs> I, you know, is this really what we're going to do? And then by the end of the film, you realize that Quinn is pretty much the worst human being that's ever been on earth and that he is totally invested, even more so than Malcolm. Uh, Malcolm has a weird redemption story about him that we'll get into that is really bizarre. So because of that, I thought Mark Lewis Jones is his name who played Quinn. Uh, apparently he was in a Star Wars film, The Last Jedi. I didn't really recognize him, uh, but I thought he gave gave a, a good performance as well. So I was I was pleased with everyone. What do you think, Danny? I, I agree with both of you. I'm, I, I teach film, and one of the things we talk about in the acting chapter is the British acting tradition. And, you know, the basic thing is British actors play enormous amount of roles. They focus on character. And usually for me, if a, a film has a ton of, of British actors, the acting usually holds up. I, mm. I think that's just they produce their the way their career arcs work is they produce a whole lot of really, really good actors and actors that are rewarded for their acting rather than, you know, maybe their attractiveness or their marketability or whatever. So yeah, I, I go went in expecting it to be well acted and I thought I found it well acted. Yeah, very good. Well then let's talk about um some of the themes then and one of the obvious themes is that of blood and blood sacrifice. So the island is kind of guarded by some kind of deity and uh, overlooks and takes care of uh, the island, causes it to produce uh, life-giving crops and food and to be healthy and, and apparently can also make it not do that. It can drain, uh, become toxic, as one of the characters says, that it no longer gives off life-giving um, produce and fruit and vegetation and so forth. And so uh, in order to uh, kind of entice this deity to do what she needs to do in order to help them live off the land, they feed her blood. And so there's sacrifice is the theme from beginning to end. In order to have life, you're going to have to have blood. And it's interesting because first it starts with animal sacrifice, and then it moves to human sacrifice. <laughs> so I don't know, like, Scott, what do you think here, man? You, you really can't get more obviously biblical than that, right? I mean, the historical redemption narrative of the Bible is we start with animal sacrifice, uh, but it's not good enough. It's not going to maintain. It's not going to last. So we move to human sacrifice. But in this case, there's a twist because the human sacrifice is it is done in a very evil uh, kind of way, uh, taking humans who don't want to be sacrificed and killing them and just giving the blood to a deity and whatnot. But it's impossible to not be thinking of those biblical themes that, that is obviously part. The story has a Christian subtext that really comes up into play in a huge way at the end of the movie, which was done really well. 
but what were you thinking, Scott, concerning the blood, the sacrifice, moving from animals to humans and uh, that major part of the film? Yeah, I got that too, totally. I don't know if you guys have seen this um, Mel Gibson movie called Apocalypto. It's not a horror picture. Does, have it, did either of you see that, Apocalypto? I haven't actually. I haven't either. I've heard of oh, it, but I don't know. You have to watch that. You must watch that movie. It, it's it's after The Passion of the Christ, but it's been a few years since it came out. And I'll show how it connects here in a second. It's it's the Aztecs. It's the ancient Aztecs. And I won't spoil the ending for you. But it's full of action, and it is full of blood. You guys like gore. It's got it. It has human sacrifices in it. And there's this one scene where this warrior goes to the temple, and he can't enter the temple until um, he cuts his hand, and he, he, he pours his own blood onto the floor, and then he has access into the presence of the god. So... Um, yeah, I, you know, I, I pick up on those kind of things, just like, just like you do, Phil. So I, yeah, I saw that in there, the animal sacrifice, the human sacrifice, they were bloodletting too. Did you notice that they sure, were yeah. each given a jar and uh, the assumption I had or the, how it looked to me is that they were filling the jar every night sort of thing. So they could feed the human blood to, uh, to their goddess who they've trapped they've got her in some kind of mesh of branches and roots that they've, they've they've imprisoned this goddess and they just force feed her blood hoping that she will be appeased or whatever and will make the crops and grow and the and the livestock produce but um yeah yeah so there's definitely some sort of um uh old testament sort of thinking and then it, yeah with the new testament thinking yeah because thomas gives his life for his sister i mean there's all sorts of things that we could oh yeah uh, absolutely but I, I had just this really I just had a chuckle. I don't think it was really that funny, but for some reason I found it to be humorous when when Thomas realizes that everyone is bloodletting and putting it in the jars and putting them outside. You get this feeling that he's like, I'm not doing that. That's crazy, man. So, so he just kind of nonchalantly takes somebody else's jar and, <laughs> and pours their blood. And I'm like, brilliant, you know, like... Why not do that? That's a great idea. It's kind of this weird picture. I was thinking this weird, funny picture of substitution, you know. Yeah, sure. uh, it was so funny, but it, they didn't really make much of that. I thought somebody might realize that he did it, but no, it was just one small little part of the film that I thought was kind of funny, actually. Yeah, that character um, has a lot of street smarts, right? He he actually saves himself at the beginning by doing basically the same thing. He switches out invites with some poor fellow who ends up, you know, getting tortured and killed because they think it's him. Yeah. Okay. So help me explain that. Help me understand that a little bit. So they were going to use the invitation that had the red blood mark or whatever it was, some kind of little red seal or something in order to know who the conspirator was. But how did they know who the conspirator was? Like, how how did he get that invitation to begin with? What did I miss? That was, They had kidnapped his sister, right. and that was basically your ransom note. It was, bring the money, here's the way you get onto the island. Oh, I see. So the card was included in the ransom note. They had pre-marked it, and then right. that's how they were. And so he realizes maybe that mark meant something, so he switches Invitation. Yeah, because he's trying to be—he—he's not going to pay the money, and he's right. trying to be underground, you know, uh, not seen while he's there. Right. That's interesting, isn't it? I—I I mean, it's because you have to think to a certain degree. He knew that it was not going to be good for the other guy, right? 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's, and, don't and, you think and, that's and, interesting? I mean, just based on his character, there his sister just trumps, because uh, there's another substitution thing almost, right? I, I, I'm This guy's going to have to take the fall because I have to get to the island uh, to see my sister without being noticed. I did, I never really I never really thought about that much watching the movie, but now that I think about it and I'm thinking about his character as it progresses throughout the film, um at first you think he's just a hates the world kind of uh I'm just going to be all about me, but then by the end of the movie he clearly has a very uh loving heart and wants to do what's right. So I don't, I don't know if there's anything else to say about that, but right, even the first, even the instances at the beginning, it's all about you know saving his sister. Yeah, he said you know he says later that that's the one thing that sort of kept him alive. Yeah, is, is his need to make sure that she was okay. Yeah, there is there's another element to the whole plot thing is we we learn that Thomas had been a missionary, right? He'd he'd been a well, I mean, when we first meet him, he's like a. He's like a wreck. Was that laudanum or something that he was taking? Yeah, I assume he's an addict. Yeah, he was like yeah. an opium addict. And so, you you, you know, you, he, he thought he was maybe the black sheep of the family or something. But they send him off to cap, to get his rescue his sister, and he's kind of a drug addict. You don't know what kind of person he is. But the story unfolds, and you find out that he's a former Christian missionary in, in Peking, in China, and that he and his his flock had been persecuted and burned, and he was branded with a uh, red hot iron cross and all this kind of stuff. And he lost his faith. He completely lost faith. And um, you know, where was God when we were suffering? That whole question. And um, you know, there's an element toward the end. Did you did you feel like maybe he was kind of? I mean, the very end is kind of an interesting thing, but but when he's saying goodbye to the women, he's not going to make it. He's been stabbed. He's been mangled. He's been, um, you know, beaten up, and he sends his sister and and this one other female character. He says, "Go get on the boat. I'm not going to make." And he says, "Pray for me." I just had I thought maybe he had a re sort of a rediscovering of his of his Christian faith. I don't know. Oh, I so I'm going to come down much stronger than that. <laughs> okay. I'm going to say it's definitely there because where I think it happened, where I think the film shows us it happened is as they're fleeing the village, he comes back from the encounter that he's had, and as they're fleeing the village, one of the villagers says, God be with you. Oh, yeah. And, and he looks deep into her eyes and says, and also with you. Right, right. And, and I, I thought that was a beautiful moment of, of, a, of the redemption of the character. And then that's fleshed out a little bit in that final scene that you just talked about. And I thought it was all perfect until the weird, now he becomes, <laughs> now he becomes the Island God. And I don't know what that's supposed to mean now. So it might ruin my entire idea about the movie. I don't want to talk about the, the very final five seconds of the film. Um, but, but let's move into suffering then, because that's the two main themes I wrote down was blood sacrifice and suffering. They're related, obviously, um, but I think the whole village, the, the cult, the island, the whole idea was built on this premise of no more suffering. Yeah. And uh, at one point, they actually say, uh, when the new people are arriving, they kind of make this, uh, this indication is given. You're not going to have to worry any longer about not having food, not having a home, not having money. And at some point, they talk about the riches that are granted us with no longer suffering. And then when he's talking about having lost his faith as a Christian missionary, the primary reason that he lost his faith was because of 
extreme suffering in the world and in his own personal life. And how it's the problem of evil, right? How can a loving God allow suffering uh, in the world? And even the the very first scene when the father, who's completely now basically like a vegetable because of everything that's happened. I can't remember. I meant to write it down and I can't remember. But do you remember what was on the mantle? It was something about suffering. It was uh, some mm. kind of phrase on their, his fireplace mantle. I didn't, about, I didn't notice it. I didn't pick it up. Yeah, it was about avoiding suffering at some point. So, uh, Danny, what did you pick up on the on the suffering angle uh, in the film? Anything there for you? I I don't think anything more than what you just said. I did not notice the the, the sign either. There, you know, I, I think that flashback scene was supposed to be the you know the Boxer Rebellion when so many Christian missionaries were uh, killed and tortured. So he had seen, it, and it wasn't just his immediate what happened to him and his immediate uh, people around him, but there was an enormous amount of death uh, to Christians uh, during that period, and uh, and. And you know, he could not; he did not handle that suffering. Right? So he has definitely abandoned his faith. But um, I'm actually very interested to talk about the ending. So, but I don't really have anything else to say about the suffering. I picked up on that too when when they showed him pleading with God. You know, he was they were. I, I think some of his parishioners or his flock were being burned at the stake. There was a burning cross. There was a lot of fire. There was screaming going on. And he was calling out to heaven, please intervene. Please reveal yourself. And it being in China, it made me think. I don't know if you guys saw the movie Silence or if you've read the book Silence. Um, it's uh, it's by a Japanese Christian author, happens to be a guy named Chus. I'm not going to get the names. I'm not going to say the name correctly. The last name is Endo. But there was the movie Silence based on the book a couple of years ago, and it's 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 set in Japan, so it's not China, but it's it's Christian missionaries who go there, and they're they're martyred, and and they they you know the whole question. The title of the book is Silence: The Silence of God. Why isn't mm-hmm. God? intervening or, or speaking to me in this point. And yeah, so I, that's what it made me think of when I saw that, that part where Thomas was calling out, I thought of the book, book and movie silence. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Uh, and it, for him to lose his faith throughout the history of the church, especially the early church, the ancient church, martyrdom was seen as a great sign of your faith in the Lord. They would actually seek out martyrdom even because we were able to do what Christ did, essentially, which is to die for our faith. So it's interesting that it's at that point, uh, he wasn't a martyr, which is an interesting thing that Andrea points out to them, him, isn't it? Uh, you didn't die. Yeah. The Lord the Lord did, in fact, spare your life. And he, and he basically says, yeah, well, for what? You know, it's, it's not worth anything. Uh, but kind of overlooking the, the complaining to God about not being there, but you're alive to complain to God that you're that he wasn't there right uh, so there's there's some interesting i think intertwining of those elements of well what exactly does faith look like then and what does that mean um so uh, let me let me ask you this question about malcolm um does malcolm have a bit of a turn in the film is malcolm consistent throughout the film and it's what's going on around him that causes us to view him differently toward the end. Here's why I asked that question. When they kill the poor chap who he changed out the invitation with, 
at first Malcolm is like my brother. You came here for peace, but all you have found is suffering. And there's it's almost like an apology, and you can feel like he's really meaning it. When I watched that scene at the beginning of the film, having no idea what was going to happen, I thought he was just an evil, maniacal jerk, and he, this was just whatever rhetoric that he was saying. But then, as I've finished the movie, I'm having to question that. Maybe I was right to begin with, but I'm having to question no. Maybe he genuinely hated what was about to happen, but for the greater good, the protection of the island, giving the blood so the crops can grow, this needed to happen so that, you know, nothing would be spilled, uh, information shared or anything like that. How did you all interpret the Malcolm character? Uh, did he just stay evil? Do you think there was a redemption? Or did we interpret him based on where we were in the story? Danny, what do you think? I just... I, I have a hard time having any sympathy or uh, any kind of uh, recognition of a redemption arc for those three characters, even, yeah. even the one that died that got shot and you know was trying to leave and his son's killed, um, because these people stumbled upon. I'm going to make the argument that she's not a goddess later, but uh, a, a magical entity who was guarding this island and like the people from the Gabriel Garcia Marquez story, uh, they just captured her <laughs> they, and started, you know, they tied her up and basically tortured her for her instead of, you know, recognizing it for, you know, the, the, what it was, they, they tried to turn it into a machinery, right? Uh, which is how they phrase it later. Uh, I, I think these, three characters, these escaped prisoners, are pretty awful human beings. Uh, I'm not particularly happy to have him sitting beside Thomas at the end while he goes through this transformation. But, um, yeah, I, I, I don't think I felt that he had much redemption. He's definitely the, you know, of the, the two people at the end, he, or the two uh, the two prisoners that survived uh, to near the end, he's, you know, he's not the most evil of the two. That other guy was an awful, awful human being. It was great. Yeah, so, Scott, your take. Yeah, I mean, so you okay? So the the colony was basically founded by these three ex escaped convicts who find this remote island. They find this goddess and trapper and all that sort of thing. And that's Frank, Quinn, and Malcolm. Malcolm becomes the apostle. I assume that's the, from the title of the picture. And yeah, he's a bad guy. The only guy that I was I had no sympathy for was Quinn. He was completely bad. He murdered his daughter. Uh, he ripped out her unborn child. He uh, was spying on her when she was in the privy. And he, and then at the end, he becomes this torturer and murderer and, and just this evil. You know, there's nothing good about him. But Frank tried to leave. And there's a scene where he is trying to leave. And Malcolm comes to talk him out of it. And I thought Malcolm was going to kill him. But Me he too. didn't. He yeah. didn't. They talked. And Frank said, look, this is... You know, we had good ideas about what we wanted this utopic, this utopic society to be like. This colony it was going to be paradise, but it's turned into hell. And and so it just made me think there was some more. Not that either of them were were good characters, but they weren't wholly bad either. Yeah, that's probably a little bit more my take on it as well. I mean, you know, I'm always looking for some kind of redemption in films. I just it's always so interesting to see how characters progress. And I think at least for Frank and Malcolm, I, who knows for Quinn, probably not, but it seems like there was some sense of wanting to do something that was good and that was right and that actually would help people and cause them to be 
um, without suffering, you know, in this utopian great society that they're going to create. And then what happens with human beings whenever we see potentially an open door to our dreams and our expectations that we want and we want it to happen quickly and maybe this is the only way? Well, then we begin to manipulate and take advantage of what we think will give us what we want. And that became the goddess or whatever Danny thinks uh, the person is. I'm looking forward to hearing that conversation. Um, and, and then they begin to take it to extremes and begin being very evil and ugly. And then that has an impact on the people. Um, but having said that, you know, how do you work your way in to a purifying process that involves putting a drill into somebody's brain? It seems like that's just something you kind of come in with thinking you're going to, you don't just kind of stumble onto that, right? And, and so that makes me think, well, they're just so deprived right from the beginning but I couldn't help but think that Malcolm at the end was like yeah he almost doesn't he almost repents at one point doesn't he like he's saying listen I've misstepped or something and I've I've not done what I should have done but I can still we can still save this thing and make it you know what we've always wanted it to be I think the answer to this is there's no real clear uh, where we're going to land exactly with Malcolm. Um, Danny's fine just to be more likely he's evil from start to finish. Scott, you're maybe a little bit more, well, maybe there's something there. I don't think the movie really completely gives it to us. Um, and is that, a, is that a strength or is that a weakness of the film, that we don't know really exactly what we should think uh, about Malcolm, I don't think he completely gives it to us. You think is that a good thing, Danny, or do we need? Do, does the viewer need to know who this guy is a little bit more? I I, I respect ambiguity in film. Yeah, I, I think uh, always. I, I would rather things not be underlined and in bold, and you know the message screamed in your ear. So I'm okay with that, certainly. Well, let's talk then. Let's talk about the goddess. Uh, Scott mentioned her a little bit uh, in his plot summary. We've now talked about her, that she is drinking the blood, that they're force feeding her basically because they have her in captivity in order for her to provide for the land. So fascinated to hear this, man. What, what's your take on that, Danny? Well, I don't have like uh, probably a fascinating take, but I think uh, when we talk about uh, Thomas regaining his Christian faith, uh, he's aware of this thing this entity yeah and he he is still able to return to to his original faith and i think that is because this isn't a goddess they treated her like a goddess but it's some kind of you know you know mythical obviously magical being but i, I know the uh, the script refers to her as and uh, him at the end as the guardian of the island Right. I, I think maybe, you know, at the most, this is some kind of, you know, sort of pagan nature concept where the island is the goddess. And, you know, there's a chosen person to uh, to protect it. But I don't really know if it even goes that far. I think there's just this this close bond between the guardian and the nature. And, and it doesn't deny sort of a, a Christian worldview. Right? I, and, and that surprised me getting to the end because you expect any movie in this subgenre to, you know, in general, they tend to be challenging, you know, Christian yeah. theology. Uh, and I, I think, I don't think that works 
if Thomas has rediscovered his faith. And I think it's pretty definite that he has. Yeah. So I don't know. And, and, and again, that's, that's my take on it. Well, you're highlighting what the rub was for me at the very end, which as I mentioned earlier, I think he definitely returns to his faith. I think that's in many ways the point of the film. But then at the very end, man, he, he basically becomes what she was. At least that was my take. You know, his, the grass starts growing around him and he, his face begins to transform and look kind of look like hers was. And now she becomes, he becomes the new what, whatever she was. But, but, I, but I just wonder, you know, whether we use the word goddess or another word, your point still stands, which is he saw this, like he saw this very strange thing going on. This wasn't a human being, uh, this, this, at least I don't think so, but maybe it was, maybe it was a human, but it wasn't a human anymore. It's something beyond human. There was some kind of ability to give life and to n nurture the land and to provide uh, resources and I don't know if it was an immortal kind of thing. She obviously wanted to be killed. Would she have lived forever? You know, would she have died? But anyway, whether you call it a goddess or not, wouldn't that have been... It's interesting that he returns to his faith after seeing what he saw on the island. What do you think, Scott? Yeah, so, you know, <clears throat> I think we can define god or goddess a little loosely here. So... She's not the, this being, what this entity. She's not goddess in the sense of a Judeo-Christian understanding of God, where we think sure. of there being one great God who is om, omnipresent, omnipotent, all-powerful, almighty, very good, and, and that there are no other gods. But from a pagan perspective, you might use the word goddess a little more loosely, not quite with that same meaning, where you're talking about the powers of nature. I mean, she's definitely life-giving, right? I mean, right. She, she, she's able to revive the land and, and, and create crops and have the livestock produce. And she's also able to take that away. And so, I mean, that's, she has power over life and death in a, in, of, the, of the island anyway. So she's not an all-powerful god, as we would think of in the Christian context, but she is a little g. I, I'm comfortable saying she, she's a goddess, but but at the same time, yeah, like Danny was saying, she's she's a mythical, uh, sort of pagan, earth, magical being, whatever we. So I'm a little more comfortable with some loose definitions here. I think in most films like this, whenever you start talking about goddess gods, those who give life to land, the gods of the grain, the gods of corn, whatever. You don't see it in the same way that you see it in this film, right? Mm -hmm. It's either represented by some kind of physical structure, an idol, if you will, or it's represented by some kind of spiritual manifestation that is not visible to the eyes. But he is chased by this woman, and he sets her on fire at the end. It, that, to me, is a very interesting take, because it would just be hard to deny the fact that like you said, she she's responsible for, in some ways, sustaining life on the island. How would he reconcile that with a Christian worldview, right? Yeah. What would I, you think? I, right. I, it is a little bit of a mystery. He he, I think he's just accepting um, things sort of at face value. 
there is something here. There's some, this, this being, this woman has some kind of power. She's being kept as sort of a slave by these evil men. And, um, yeah, I think he's just taking it face value. I don't know if he's able to reconcile it sort of in a systematic way. But, but then even if he doesn't understand it, I guess he's going to have a crash course with it because he becomes, that's the way you all took it, right? Yeah, he, that's he how basically becomes the, the new. Yeah, I think it's definitely true. Guardian. Whatnot, yeah. So. yeah. Um, what, what, what didn't work? We, we're talking a lot about some good things here. What fell flat? You know, what, what can we critique a little bit uh, with the movie itself? Well, can I ask a question? Um, who or what was that bloody man with the hood? <laughs> well, I mean, that was never explained, right? Yeah, the the grinder. He has this well, yeah, like, he, he, bug-like <laughs> head thing. I don't know. You know, uh, I, I think it's a he's a wonderful image. Like, yeah, but I have no clue. Yeah, he was very scary, and he has this machine, and he had Thomas strapped to it. I thought it was just going to be a rack, but it was a rack plus. I mean, it was pulling him, and it was trying to pull him into, uh, you know, as he was cranking it, the, this this what bloody man, he was cranking it, and Thomas, his hands, he was going to go into this grinder and be turned into sausages, but he got out of it. His hands are mangled, but he got out of it and ends up killing that thing. But I, 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 was this one of the islanders? Was this part of the goddesses? Um, you know, uh, uh, one of her so companions. I originally, or yeah, I don't. Know. I originally thought. I tell you who the character reminded me of. I don't know if you've seen House of a Thousand Corpses by Rob Zombie, but he reminded me of the character Tiny in that movie. Agreed. Kind of t- tiny or uh, tall, lanky, really disturbing the way he moved his arms and things. I thought he was an islander at first that they had put, you know, to protect uh, the, the the goddess and to make sure that she got blood. But what's weird, if that were true, why would he blow away Frank so quickly? Yeah. Right? Because that would be one of his, the big three, which makes me think, okay, no, now she he's actually in service to the queen or whatever. Yeah, he may be like an avatar. Right. That's, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, that was that's the one thing that you know you don't have to explain everything in a film, especially right. a horror film. I'm okay with some loose ends, but it just seemed like they were explaining stuff, but then that one doesn't get explained. So I don't know that. Man, if I'm nitpicking, like I'm just really looking for something after the whole ordeal where Thomas is swimming through the blood and he encounters the the goddess and all of this crazy stuff happening happens, and then he ends up in the cave. Andrea just shows up yeah, she like knows he's there she knows he's there did none of the other people think to look there or did you know why did she go there was it that obvious i don't know did you all notice that at all or just no big deal you know? I, I actually noticed it and there and there really are a couple more moments like that where it's things happen just because they had to happen to advance yeah. the plot um and those that might actually be one of the things that you know, it kept this from you know being elevated in my mind. Uh, but once you mention it, though, that scene with him underground in the the tunnels full of slush and blood and mm. you know body parts and was and then eventually getting chased by the projection of the goddess there was insanely effective. I love that scene. It is gruesome. 
Yeah, it really was. I, I thought it was really effective. And claustrophobic. Well. <laughs> That's what, in that, it was kind of at that moment when you, when you realized, whoa, I may be in for a little more here than I thought, you know, uh, in terms of even gore, because I was really pretty gross. I mean, he was swimming in blood, wasn't he? I mean, that was what it was. Down yeah. That, yeah, and that. we've been taught in uh, these cult horror films uh, to expect, you know, mostly it's sort of almost a murder investigation or something until we get right to the end, and then we're going to have a moment of, you know, you know the the cop being you know burned in effigy in Wicker Man or something like that, or, you know, Midsummer's incredible blow up in the last 15 minutes but here you get about halfway through and it's all blood and guts the rest of the movie yeah and you know and just uh you know since we're talking about uh hey danny this movie did not have anybody hitting a deer uh, so that that's one thing but it seems like we are reviewing films you know in european desolate places with weird cults all over the place so yeah. we can continue that theme i guess as well and we uh, even had the invitation, which was a deer got hit at the beginning, and it was also about a weird cult. That's true. Yep, that's true. That had to kill people in order to. Well, deer. Yeah. I think it was just me and Philip when we we reviewed Jug Face. That's right. That oh, yeah, I haven't even like, seen that film. Oh, you totally got to watch that, Dan. Oh, it's great. It is a. We good should review movie. it again. Yeah. I mean, that's such <laughs> such a good movie. Yeah, I, I, yeah, it made me think of that a little bit. I mean, it's you know different setting and everything, but there's a god in the woods that has to be appeased. And, I, th- you know, Scott, what do you what, did you enjoy this or Jugface more? Oh, I don't know. I mean, it's apples and oranges. Uh, I liked them both. Yeah. I don't know. I, I really enjoy Jugface. I have written Jugface down. Yeah, it's, good. it's it's worth seeing. It's good. And then did you guys notice that the three, I guess some of the other villagers may have done it, but it was definitely the big three, that they would talk in like, you know, with the yees and the thous and that kind of stuff, um, but nobody else did. It seemed like that was another, kind of what I was talking about earlier with the really um, uh, just horrific imagery of the torture and everything that was seemed to be an earlier time period when all those horrible devices were taking place. But then they would kind of have that middle English kind of thing going on. Did y'all notice that? Yeah, certainly. And and also, can we talk about the fact that they had a full Bible? The, yeah, that was apparently three, Malcolm's, right? This three, yeah, these three convicts. <laughs> who, I mean, we don't know their educational history or whatever, but uh, they had, you know, the the scene where the the uh, spy was found, they were reciting the catechism, right? The, of yep. the, of their religion, it was in uh, that's an insanely elaborate thing. So that might lend towards the ideal that there's a goddess situation here. Maybe that was you know divinely inspired into him or something. But that was a big old thick book full of scripture that he came up with. Well, that was hard bound, and they had their own logo imprinted on the front of it. Yeah, I'm not sure how they pulled that off because they were so poor they couldn't even they couldn't even buy animals to sacrifice. What, right. What language was that? God? Did you guys recognize the language when she spoke to Thomas, the goddess? I mean, they had to put subtitles up and everything. Yeah. Was no, that? I don't it didn't know. sound like Welsh, but I don't know enough. I haven't heard Welsh enough to know if I could recognize it. No, I, I certainly. Didn't know if it was a real language or not? I, okay. I assumed it was uh, was fictional, but. It might not have been. Yeah. Hey, did you all notice this? So if I'm just thinking of super details now, but I couldn't help but notice this. When they came out of the church service that first time when he was preaching to all of the, uh, everybody, the whole village, when they came out of the church service, did you notice the children 
just very flippantly tossed the Bibles into the basket. <laughs> yeah. I loved that, yeah. man, because yeah. I see that basically every Sunday, right? Like, when do we get to play? And what was really menacing about this, though, is they, they, they tossed the Bible almost to say, we don't care about this. And then I was listening with headphones, so I could hear it really well. If you weren't listening with headphones, you may not have picked this up. But after they throw the Bible into the basket and the kids run off, one of them says, let's go play. <laughs> Did you all hear that? I don't know. Okay, you did or didn't? I don't know. I don't you remember. Don't know. Well, here's why that was important. Later, you know, when you see the kids playing, they're, and she's like, looks like they're braiding hair and everything, and then the camera pulls back, and what they're actually doing is kind of torturing uh, Jennifer. The prisoner. The yeah. prisoner. Yeah. And do you remember what the guard says to the, uh, Jennifer when she kind of lashes out of him? It was the like, let said, the kids play. Right? Let the kids play. Wow. So my take is when they threw the Bibles, and then said, let's go play. What they were going to do was basically torture Jennifer. That's their idea of playing. I, you know, just little things like that, I think, was were pretty cool, the way yeah. he tied those yeah. things together. I get it. Uh, what else? Anything else? Uh, Danny, Scott, anything else to add to our conversation here? No, I think that about wraps it up for me. Yeah, I got nothing. I enjoyed it, so I would recommend it. Yeah, I think we hit all definitely hit all the highlights and uh, the main points. So if you've checked out uh, Apostle, please let us know what you think. Tell us things that we've missed and insights that you uh, saw to the found out to the film. Well, let me let me just mention this one last thing: um, the scene where Quinn um, basically kills his daughter. Wasn't that one of the most difficult scenes to watch? It certainly was for me, especially since she grabs her father's face and says. I need a father's love right now. Yeah, I'm a daughter looking for a father's love or something yeah. like that. Yeah, it was oh. incredibly effective. Man, just, just heart-wrenching. And I have a daughter, so, you know, it, it just kind of makes that hit home even more. Um, yeah, so a hard scene. Yeah. All right, guys, thanks so much for the great feedback and the conversation, and we look forward to seeing you next week uh, here at The Blackest Eyes on the Body Count Podcast. Uh, be sure to subscribe to the podcast. Keep checking in with us. It's really, really great for us to be recording uh, with some consistency and watching films. I'm having a great time, and we hope that you are too. Uh, so until next time, be safe out there, and of course, stay scared. We'll see you soon. Bye-bye.